Why are laws failing to protect women from violence, and what is being done to change this? Join us as we explore these questions and more. This is Spotlight, Justice for Women, a podcast from the Wilson Center. Justicia para las mujeres. Las leyes no son suficientes. Well, thank you so much for joining me. My name is Beatrice Nice with the Latin American Program, and I want to introduce our guest today. Her name is Fernanda Vanegas, and she's a specialist in women's rights and gender equality. She has worked in the field of women's rights and gender equality for nearly 10 years and has an extensive knowledge of women's issues in El Salvador. She consulted for UN Women in El Salvador in security, gender, and organized crime issues. Until recently, she coordinated the technical work of the Rapporteurship on the Rights of Women of the Inter-American Commission on Human Rights of the Organization of American States, which is the main autonomous body to promote and protect human rights in the Americas. Fernanda, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you, Beatrice. Thank you for having me. And thank you to the Wilson Center for this series of podcasts on violence against women. So I would like to start off our conversation by asking you, talking about El Salvador's pre-COVID scenario for women. Well, pre-COVID scenario for in El Salvador for women, there is, it's very complex, a very complex um, country. But what we have been seeing for years now is a very concerning situation on human rights violations and particularly on the situation of women and girls. As you know, and as it is broadly known, there is a critical situation of security linked to the overall presence of criminal groups, the gangs, or also called the maras in Spanish. And even though global homicides rates in the country have slowly decreased in recent years, El Salvador is still amongst the most violent countries in the world, in general, let's say. Wow. And of course, mm-hmm. for women and girls. It's, it's also a country marked by poverty, by the lack or the very limited access to universal services like clean water, health, schooling, and with a large group of people working in the informal sector or relying in the remesas, you know, this money sent by Salvadorians working abroad, sending this money to their families in the country. And um, among all these, the Mm -hmm. remesas, the remises, yes, remittances, that's right. And among all of these, let's say, poverty, incapacity of the state to address all these population needs um, in a context of economic wreckage, in extreme violence in general, we see violence against women and girls. And it tends to be somewhat overlooked. Let's say there's, there's so many things to look at. There are so many challenges in this small country that violence against women and girls is being overlooked or not always properly addressed. And it's a country where women and girls are at risk of falling victims of violence pretty much everywhere and every day, in the workplace, in the streets, at school, in public transportation, in their communities, their neighborhoods, and their own homes. So this is a problem that has been going on for for many years, correct, Fernanda? This is not something new. That is correct. That is not something new. And the analysis and the studies that we do when we talk about El Salvador, we mark, let's say, the recent studies after the civil war, after the peace process and the peace agreements, that is in the mid-19s. And from that time is that when we start um, studying violence globally in El Salvador, 
and Valastan Stuyman. So this is not a new situation. This has been an ongoing situation and it has not gone any better. I understand there are different types of violence, right? Not all violence is the same. Could you give us a little, a little background as to the predominant types of violence that we find in El Salvador? In, well, in, in, yes, of course, in, in El Salvador, as I was mentioning, um, is one of the most violent um, countries in the world. It, it has the highest or one of the highest rates of homicides in the world. It includes homicides, kidnappings, a missing person, trafficking, um, and then specific violence addressed to women and, and girls. And it is one of the most dangerous places today to be born women and girls in the world because of the many different forms of violence that they face. Can you tell us a little bit which are the most, you know, the predominant ones that we can find? Is it sexual violence? Is it rape? Is it forced union? Feticide? Which one is it? Femicide is maybe the most striking example in El Salvador. Last mm -hmm. year, there were at least 230 gender-based killings of women that is based on civil society information and data. To get an idea, El Salvador has the highest femicide rate, not only in the region, but in the world. As a comparison, El Salvador has a rate of gender-based killings of around 6.7. And to get an idea, in the USA, mm -hmm. that same rate is about 1.1. That is six times higher. Okay, well, I think you know, having talked about the predominant types of violence that El Salvador has, I think one of the main things that characterizes El Salvador are the maras, the gangs, which we've seen that has translated into a loss of sovereignty from the state in several parts of the country. Could you tell us how these maras or gangs have affected women and their situation in the country? Well, this is a great topic, and I'm very happy that you're uh, bringing it up because it has been rather underanalyzed, even though we all know, everyone knows, that there is a direct link between the presence of maras, the challenges of the state to cope with this violence, and violence against women. We all know this is happening because mm -hmm. the gangs control and dominate territories. This is the mechanism uh, that Maras use, right, to control territories through threats, intimidation, and a culture of violence that affects communities and people's everyday lives, activities, movement. It is a very complex situation for women and girls to be in this organized crime context because on the one hand, we, we have to keep in mind that some women and girls join gangs voluntarily, they're part of the gang system, okay. while others live with gang members in their communities. They are mothers, sisters, daughters, partners, or maybe just community neighbors. So we have these two situations that, that are coexisting. And women and girls face risks of violence in both of these situations. Women can be drawn to join gangs seeking a sense of protection, to access weapons, to access drugs, to have money, to join a feeling of family. But to do so, for them to join a gang, they must undergo admission tests 
that can include beatings, groupal sexual assaults, gang rapes, or the okay. obligation to have sex with all gang members. That is the test a woman or girl has to pass to access a gang. That is on the, that first situation, let's say. Mm -hmm. Then, on the other hand, we have women and girls living in communities controlled by gangs. And pretty much the whole territory of El Salvador is controlled by, by different gangs. These girls and women are constantly subject to threat or to actual rape, sexual slavery, forced prostitution, forced unions, forced marriages, um, even forced pregnancies or abortions, disappearances, and murders or killings. And this link between gangs and violence against women is based on the mere fact that women are considered inferior, while the gang culture rests on the hypermasculinity of male members. So gender-based violence in this context is a key element of the strategy of fear and domination that gangs have on their territories. Women, their mm -hmm. families, and even their bodies are part of a control strategy. They're part of this war to control territories. And this situation um, results in many women and, and girls trying to flee their homes with their children, with their families in fear of their lives or to protect their families. And also for fear of retaliation and lack of trust in authorities, there okay. is a very limited reported of, of this situation. There are very few reports against gang members in cases of violence against women and thus an underanalyzed situation in domestic public policy. What's the situation in El Salvador regarding femicide? Is it high? Is it low? And, you know, why is it so important that we pay attention to this number? Well, in, in El Salvador, as I was mentioning, a femicide is one of the greatest and most extreme forms of violence against women right now. El Salvador has the highest rate of femicides in the world. In the region is um, only uh, followed up by, very closely, by Honduras. And femicide, it's, it's important to, to underscore that femicide is a very particular um, code and legal provision. Femicide is the murder of women, of a woman based on their gender, because they're women. Okay. It also includes the trans femicides, right? Which is the murder of trans women because of the, uh, of the hatred of being trans or being a woman. And in El Salvador, there's also a particular point, a very specific provision that is kind of um, original, may I say, which is the suicidal femicide. It is when a woman is pushed or led to kill herself as a result of gender-based violence, threats, or abuse. Okay. And pretty much all countries in Latin America have right now adopted specific criminal provisions to highlight the fact that murdering a woman because of the hatred against her gender, because of a supposed inferiority of her gender is different than any other killing. And by highlighting this difference, um, this criminal provision allows to, or must allow, to better protection, to better reparations to the victims or to the survivors. And can you tell us a little bit about the institutional framework that El Salvador currently has when it comes to dealing with uh, the crime of femicide? 
Yes, surely. It's in, in El Salvador, what, what I believe is a very positive side and efforts, great efforts have been made from the state to create a legal and an institutional framework to protect women from femicide and from other forms of violence. First of all, Salvador mm -hmm. is part of all the main international treaties and bodies governing human rights and particularly the rights of women. It is part of the CEDAW Convention, which, as you know, is considered the universal treaty on violence and discrimination against women. And yes. it's also part of the Inter-American Convention called Belém do Pará, which is the regional treaty, Inter-American Treaty, governing the state's obligations and responsibilities in this matter. So El Salvador has expressed um, a commitment towards the international treaties and bodies. And on the national level, the state has also undertaken great efforts to build a normative and institutional framework, which is not the case everywhere. And, and that, is, that is why I think it's, it's a very good question that you're asking, because not all countries in the world and in the region in Latin America have made these efforts. In El Salvador, amongst all the institutions which exist, um, I think we can mention two main laws. Okay. The law for equality, equity, and eradication of violence against women. That's the first mm -hmm. one. And the second one, the comprehensive law for life free from violence. These two laws combined together with other bodies, other laws, and other policies create a protection system. Um, define what is violence against women and include femicide, um, sexual abuse, rape, and all the other forms of, of violence, including what I was talking before, uh, femicide, suicide, uh, missing, the missing women, and so on and so on. This is for the legal framework. But institutionally, El Salvador has also crea created the Salvadorian Institute for the Protection of Women. In Spanish, it's called ISDEMO. Okay. And this institute is a fantastic institution coordinating and bringing together all the efforts to include the rights of women in laws, in bills, in policies, budgets, in the Justice Department, and in overall development projects. So now I want to move on a little bit about what has El Salvador been doing right when it comes to gender-based violence and when it comes to femicide. About the good practices that El Salvador has been, uh, has been doing, I think we can mention that the provision of femicide has achieved a progressive increase on its application. Mm -hmm. Because one thing is that the femicide exists as a criminal type, as a criminal provision, and another okay. thing is that it is being applied by judges, by prosecutors in investigations, and by judges. In, in 2012, only 10% of violent deaths of women were qualified under this type of criminal offense. Five years later, 73% mm -hmm. were, were qualified like this. So what we're seeing is a progressive increase in the application, in the use of this criminal offense by justice operators. So that is something positive because that means that in the justice department, the justice field, we know what is femicide and we're making use of this provision on the criminal code. Correct. Another um, positive aspect that I think we can highlight is the uh, implementation of a national system data 
we know that it is a current um, recommendation of international bodies, of experts, and so to have disaggregated data on mm -hmm. gender-based violence. Because if we don't have the information, if we don't have the numbers, we cannot design public policy, right? Correct. So in El Salvador, um, the, the state and different mechanisms and institutions of the state have undertaken great, great efforts to create this national system of data, statistics, and information on violence against women. It has managed to date to issue five reports on the situation faced by women. I believe those are yearly reports, and not every country has this. So this is also something good to be, uh, to be shared. I believe this system and this effort on disaggregated data has been praised and has been and is now being shared with neighboring countries with Guatemala and Honduras. So that's very, very important because it's it's turning into a regional effort. Yes, yes, exactly. And if as I say, if we don't have the data and the information, we cannot design comprehensive public policy. And with the data comes also justice. How do we try, how do we bring to justice these cases of violence mm -hmm. against women? And in El Salvador, there has been the creation and installation of specialized jurisdiction for the right of women to, to live a life free of violence and discrimination. And okay. this specialized jurisdiction um, can instruct and sentence recognizing the inequalities which women access to justice system and applying human rights standards. So we have specialized courts to deal with a certain kinds of offenses dealing with gender-based violence. Oh, wow. Okay. So that's a very, very positive thing that El Salvador has, right? Yes, correct. It, it's fairly new. It mm -hmm. has been in place for, um, I believe, three or four years now. So it's, it's fairly new, but it is a very positive step. Now, we've talked about all the positive. Let's, let's turn the corner and let's see what doesn't work. What is El Salvador still missing to provide women with a safe and healthy environment for, you know, for themselves and for their children? Well, uh, as you said, uh, there are great efforts being undertaken, but nothing is simple and nothing is perfect, right? So there are still real challenges remaining for women and girls, victims of violence, to have, full to, to have access to judicial resources, to their cases to be duly processed, to obtain reparations, and a very complex set of, of challenges remaining. For example, there are only, currently in the country, there are only three shelters for women victims of violence. These are shelters operated by government services uh, for victims for victims of violence and their families, their children. There are only three in, okay. the, in the country, which is clearly insufficient for the dramatic situation that women face, as we have mm -hmm. been talking about. And this, this is one of the examples. Another one is the specialized courts. We were just mentioning that. It is Correct. great that El Salvador has specialized courts. However, these courts are already collapsed. They, they are already completely overwhelmed by the phenomenon of, of violence against women. They are not enough. The violence against women is such a wide, such a large phenomenon 
that these institutions are collapsed, are overwhelmed. And the women are, are still very, 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 um, at a very low level of trust in the administration of justice. Mm-hmm. The, um, the most recent data uh, suggests that only 6% of victims report acts of violence against them. This is women victims, only 6%. Because there is a lack of trust in the administration. There is a lack or very limited integration of gender perspective in the office of the prosecutor, in public defender, and in general, a lack of adequate gender-sensitive training for civil servants and for those in direct contact with victims of violence, with police officers, with public defenders, and Mm -hmm. so on and so. And in in general, violence against women has not been addressed as a priority. And how do you measure priorities? One of the ways of measuring this is money, the expenditure, right? Mm -hmm. How much are we spending in protecting women and girls? In El Salvador, less than 1% of public budget is allocated to this issue. You can also see that there is no ministry on the rights of women. We have the ISTEMU, which we mm-hmm. talked before, is an institute and it is a fantastic institution, but there is no ministry on the rights of women. And in general, all the spaces, all the institutions, all the services um, to protect or to give attention to women and girls are in extreme shortages of basic furniture resources, of technical equipment, of trained personnel, and completely surpassed by this phenomenon of violence against women. Yes, yes, I was I was recently um, on a call with somebody from Izemu, and they did mention the fact that the budget allocation that El Salvador has is minimal compared to the problem that this represents as a society. So exactly. having talked about all of these um, shortcomings legally, how can we protect women more? Um, you know, how can we improve the legal framework to protect Salvadorian women? Well, as you say, the starting point is so wide and so overwhelming that it is, it is really a great challenge that the, the country is facing. But there are some clues or hints that can be sent to, to policymakers, to mm-hmm. officials, and to the state mechanism in general. And it is first, I believe there's something to do about strengthening protection to women in particular situation of vulnerability. We have not talked about this, but journalists, women rights defenders, mm-hmm. and women with political commitments are also target of specific forms of violence. And these women need also to be protected because they're doing their jobs, their activities okay. are fundamental for democracy. They're journalists, the women's rights defenders, and they're women um, actively participating in politics. Also, there's women in particular situation of need who have been completely left behind. You have women with disabilities and the elderly. These women have completely been left behind by the state, by different responses, in policies, in budgetary provisions, everywhere. So they are invisible. Amongst those not visible, among the most invisible women, we mm-hmm. find women with disabilities and the elderly. There is, we have talked about this, 
that there is a need to put an end to the total abortion ban because okay. it is directly linked with, uh, with a huge set of rights of, for women. So it's directly linked with sexual violence, with risky pregnancies, with access to education, access to health, access to work, and yes. to development and women empowerment. So it is not only about due process, it is not only about abortion, it is about protecting a whole array and sets of rights. I believe there's also something um, very deeply rooted that needs to be transformed and mm -hmm. those are social norms. We were talking about this, right? You mentioned machismo, and yes. that is something that needs to be transformed. We need to transform discriminatory stereotypes against women. We need, we need to eradicate these stereotypes that are permeating a civil servants, justice operators, because as long as we have these stereotypes, the state will not protect women, because women and girls will be seen as inferior to men, as not being worthy or as worthy of services, of justice, of operation. And the last, uh, for me, the last point uh -huh. um, that I, I can think of will be impunity. We need to eradicate impunity. The state needs to send a strong signal that violence against women is not okay. And for uh -huh. that, we need to eradicate impunity. So there's still a lot a lot to do despite all of the advances that we've talked about and you know it gives us hope but it also showcases the the mountain that we still need to climb right that is right yes <laughs> well i want to finish off by um asking you just you know as we as we finish our conversation about coronavirus as we all know, the coronavirus has deeply affected women all over the world. This is not a regional problem, but a worldwide problem. Being at home with your abuser has obviously increased the, the cases that we've seen. There's been a rise in the region of cases of femicide, of cases of gender-based violence. And what do you see in El Salvador? What, what is the current state particular to this country? As you, well, as you say, there is a common pattern that we have been seeing across the globe, and that is the increase of violence against women during this pandemic. And mm -hmm. this, of course, has also been the case in El Salvador. And part of that pattern that we, that we see is that the pre-existing challenges, the pre-existing conditions before coronavirus a pandemic before the pandemic are now being um, deepened, are now being aggravated. So mm -hmm. if we were talking that women were at risk of falling victims of domestic violence or abuse, now they're even more so. If we were just mentioning that there are challenges for women to access to protection, to shelters or to, to different services, now even more so. If women before the pandemic were not reporting violence against them, now in a, in a lockup, in a lockdown, they won't do it either. So that is, so that is the, the, this side of the pattern that we're seeing everywhere. We are also seeing this in El Salvador. We know that um, from the last, the last information or the last data that I got is that uh, according to civil society organizations, 
domestic violence in El Salvador has increased up 70% since March and reports wow. are on the rise. So, yeah, so we, we have been talking about these extremely concerning um, data, numbers, figures, and indexes, and it's all increasing. So what we just mentioned, everything is spiking, and I hope not out of control. Because uh, you were saying this, to face mm -hmm. the pandemic, the states have declared mandatory lockdowns. And this has led to thousands of women to be in lockdown with their abusers, with partners, abusive partners, family mm -hmm. members, or relatives. And during this, the pandemic, we know that social confinement can exacerbate the conflicts between families, the conflicts between individuals, the conflicts between partners, and can exacerbate the violence with which they are resolved, particularly in abusive relationships and at homes with a back history of violence. In addition to this physical violence and okay. to sexual violence, mm -hmm. confinement can also deepen psychological and financial violence, can reaffirm toxic dynamics of power and abuse over women, such of, uh, as control on their communications, their work, their movements, their, you know, calling their families, calling relatives, which were already limited before the lockdown, were already limited before the pandemic. So this is aggravating this sense of uh, isolation, of being alone with the abuser. And it's a very risky situation for women victims of gender-based violence because their mm -hmm. interaction, their possibilities to ask for help, to report their cases, and even to escape and to seek safe refuge are now even more limited than they were before. And it is paramount in this, what is happening right now in the world, in all of our countries, and mm -hmm. a place like El Salvador. It is paramount that the community takes care of the women, of girls and women living in their neighborhoods. If there is an act of violence, it must be reported. And most importantly, the state services need now to adapt, to better respond to the aggravation of this phenomenon of violence against women during the pandemic. Because if these services are not responding, if they're not adapting, if they're not going at the same speed, as the violence is going, it will get out of control. Well, Fernanda, I want to finish off our conversation with the last part that you say about we need to take care of our women, we need to adapt our systems, and we need to, to find better ways to improve situation for women. So I really want to thank you for joining us. Uh, this was a very interesting, very enlightening, and I really appreciate taking the time to join us at Spotlight. Thank you, Beatrice. Thank you for having me. This podcast is brought to you by the Wilson Center with support from the Center's Brazil Institute, Latin America Program, Mexico Institute, and Maternal Health Initiative. Our thanks to Linda Roth, John Tyler, and the rest of the Wilson Center's communications team. Special thanks go to Aaron Jones, who not only produced this podcast, but composed the music. I'm Anya Prusa, Join me and my co-hosts, Beatrice Garcia-Nice and Olivia Soledad, next time on Spotlight Justice for Women. Thanks for listening.